Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that hates military history, because talking about how a bunch of rich white dudes were upset about whose turn it was to sit on some random fancy chair and wear a stupid hat every generation is really annoying. Welcome to episode 15 of Bitchy History, where we get to talk about my least favorite type of history, which is military history. To start off, though, I would like to thank the show's first three Patreon supporters, Modman, Alexandria, and Tad. Thank you so very much for the support, and I hope the show will continue to deliver. If anyone else would like to support the show, there's a link to the Patreon on bitchyhistory.com. I just got it fixed, so the show will show up on Patreon's search bar, because apparently they had set it to be 18 plus for some reason. Bitchy isn't even a PG-13 word, which I pointed out. Also, there are several other Patreons with bitchy or bitch in the title, so it really made no sense. They fixed it, though, so the Patreon is now easier to find through the Patreon app. On to the history. There are two ways to think about European history. There's the super complicated way with all the kings and queens and various complicated tension points related to religion and trade and economics. And then there's the way I generally think about it. I imagine it as a never-ending Tom and Jerry episode, with either England or France as Tom or Jerry, depending on the century. Oh, France and England are fighting again? Must be a Monday. I don't know what it is with those two, but they just cannot seem to get along. You know what, David? You get murdered first for once. No, you get murdered first. David, you get murdered first. No, you! You you get murdered first! Basically, they've been at each other's throats since the Norman Conquest in the 11th century, which wasn't really France versus England, but the French were involved. Then we had the Hundred Years' War, which gave us historical figures like Joan of Arc and the invention of the English longbow, and where we also learned that the French never learned the meaning of the word insanity as they kept trying to attack the English in ways that made it distressingly easy for English longbowmen to skewer them. I'm just saying that after the first couple of times that full plate armor got treated like tinfoil by English archers, I might have changed up my battle strategy instead of getting stuck knee-deep in mud at Agincourt and turning the field into a shooting gallery. Eh, hindsight is twenty twenty. During the period of the Reformation, religious tensions led to increased conflict between the French, who remained predominantly Catholic, and the English, who, as we've discussed before, did not. These religious differences, combined with political ambitions, culminated in the French Wars of Religion from 1562 to 1598. Both England and France supported different factions in the conflict, exacerbating the tensions between the two nations. The end of the French Wars of Religion would not, unfortunately, end the religious tension between these nations, however. Anti-Catholic sentiment in the Americas will be coming up a lot over the next, well, basically it'll make an appearance off and on from this point in the podcast up until the post-war period. And by post-war, I of course mean post-World War II. And then it's going to come up again when we get to the presidential race of 1960. Yeah, anti-Catholicism is a major recurring theme in American history, along with a lot of other unsavory stances with anti in the name. Anti-immigrant, anti-black, anti-disability, anti-woman, you get the picture. American history itself is basically an extended Tom and Jerry episode, where Jerry is the white straight Protestant male and Tom is anyone else, getting pummeled in increasingly absurd ways. It turns out that America has really only ever been great for a remarkably small subset of privileged people. Hold on, I need to go lock my doors before Moms for Liberty bursts in to take my microphone. Okay, they can just stay out there and be mad. Once the wars of religion calmed down slightly, we move directly into the colonial conflicts of the 17th and 18th century, which is what we're actually going to talk about today. 
So let's talk about the conflicts between England and France and how they become one of the many tension points which will lead us into the American Revolution. When we talk about the French and Indian War in an American history class, usually the only thing we think of is the one that was connected to the Seven Years' War, which occurred in the mid-1700s. However, there are actually four colonial wars that are considered to be the French and Indian Wars, and they run from 1689 to 1763. In order, these are King William's War, Queen Anne's War, King George's War, and finally, the French and Indian War. Each of these corresponds with a war on the other side of the Atlantic as well, because apparently anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So today, we're only going to talk about the first three of these wars, leaving the Seven Years' War for a future episode, because that's where we start getting very involved in all of the modern narratives around the American Revolution. During the 17th and 18th centuries, England and France were engaged in fierce competition for colonial dominance. They clashed in various parts of the world, including North America, the Caribbean, India, and Africa. They were struggling for control over lucrative trade routes and resources, battling both each other and the natives of these lands who really categorically didn't want either of them there in the first place. But the natives often chose sides in the conflict based on which of the European countries they thought might be slightly less shitty to them in the long run. Were they right? Usually not. Europeans tended to treat the natives pretty shittily whether their last name was English or French, and even worse if their last name was Dutch. This all kicks off with King William's War in 1689, also called the Nine Years' War in Europe. It began as an extension of the larger conflict between England and France, also called the War of the Grand Alliance. The war primarily took place in northern English colonies of New England, Nova Scotia, and Hudson Bay. Since there's both a colonial and European side to this war, we have to look at the causes of both. Over in Europe, there's a power struggle between King Louis XIV of France and William III, the brand new King of England. William has just become king when King James II had been ousted in the Glorious Revolution. This should sound familiar. I briefly covered it in episode 14. James II was the last Catholic King of England, and he flees to France, where he tries to get King Louis to join forces to take back the throne. If you're a fan of Outlander, this should sound vaguely familiar as well. Season 2's depiction of Bonnie Prince Charlie's attempt to rally a Jacobite uprising is the last gasp of the Stuart line's attempt to reclaim the throne, Charlie being James II's grandson. But back in 1689, James II is still hoping to retake the throne, and King Louis XIV is all set to help, because that would make England Catholic again. Like I said, a lot of this conflict is purely based on a lot of stress over which religion people should be forced to believe in. French forces invade the Rhineland, Germany and the Netherlands, in 1688. The English, the Dutch Republic, and the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold respond by creating an anti-French coalition in 1689 to go to war with the French. That's as far as my outline of that side of the war goes. France eventually lost because they tend to do that when any male Frenchman is leading the charge, but this conflict spills over into the colonies. The English are in cahoots with the Iroquois Confederacy, and the Iroquois are preventing the French and their allies, the Wabanaki tribe, from expanding their hold on the North American fur trade, which was extremely lucrative. In April of 1688, St. Caston's Trading House in Maine was plundered by English Governor Andros, and this becomes one of the major events that kicks off the war in the colonies. In response to Andros' raid, the Baron de Saint-Castin and the Wabanaki Confederacy began a military campaign along the border of New England. On August 13, 1689, Caston attacked New Dartmouth and killed a few settlers. A few days later, they killed two people in Yarmouth in what becomes the First Battle of King William's War. Then England officially declares war on France, and the entire tone of the colonial conflict changes and heats up considerably. Now it wasn't just about the fur trade, it was country-on-country violence of the patriotic type. 
To drastically paraphrase Howard Peckham's book, The Colonial Wars, imagine a fight between two small children. The parents would usually step in and pull them apart and make them apologize and play nice. Then imagine that same fight, but instead of pulling the kids apart, the parents start cheering their kids on and then go full WWE on each other. Now at 11, Mama said knock you out. Two teen girls throw down in an after-school brawl that ends up on YouTube, but it's one of their mothers that's now ended up in jail. As a brief aside, while looking for a sound clip to add in here, I found way too many local news stories about parents encouraging beatdowns between teenagers. What is going on? This war ends up being mostly a proxy war for France and England and the colonies, as they more or less just stood back and cheered on the native tribes that fight each other. But the French and English soldiers did get their hands dirty a few times, usually in defense of their own settlements. Oh, and in the middle of the war, the English in Massachusetts take time out to totally lose their minds in Salem in 1692. So that happened. You'd think they'd have more on their mind, but I guess a good witch trial was a nice distraction from hating the French for a second. In 1694, a peace treaty is signed, which doesn't take. In 1696, the conflict continues with a naval battle and several raids by the French and the Wabanaki, which more or less flattens the entirety of the English settlements in Newfoundland. The English, of course, retaliate, and more bloodshed and destruction goes back and forth for a bit until the Treaty of Ryswick is signed in 1697, ending both the colonial and European side of the war. The treaty stipulated that the borders of New France, New England, and New York remain unchanged, but claims to some of the disputed territories were left unresolved, which, as anyone paying attention to current events with Crimea, Russia, and Ukraine should realize, that doesn't work out well for anyone. In fact, it leads to the second of the French and Indian Wars, Queen Anne's War, which starts in 1702. So there's a five-year break after a nine-year war, a nine-year war that no one won. Queen Anne's War is also known as the War of Spanish Succession in Europe. It's the second French and Indian War, but also sometimes referred to as the Third Indian War. Have I confused you sufficiently now? So Queen Anne's War has a lot of players. The English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the Iroquois, and the Wabanaki Confederacies are all getting in on this one. Once again, drama starts in Europe over who is supposed to be sitting on an overly gilded throne, this time in Spain. King Charles II of Spain dies in 1700 without a child, which is a rookie mistake if there ever was one. He leaves the monarchy to the grandson of King Louis XIV of France, only William III of England doesn't like that plan. Why? Because England hates France. Have you not been listening to this entire episode? Why it's any of William's damn business who sits on the Spanish throne is anyone's guess. But nevertheless, William is going to make a play to get his choice on that throne, his choice being the son of the Holy Roman Emperor who did, I suppose, have a claim to it, being a Habsburg, the same as Charles II. The Holy Roman Emperor's son is also a Charles, by the way, Charles VI, to be exact. The numbering makes no sense. Just let it flow around and through you and stop trying to make it make sense. Then, after having the audacity to start this whole mess, William III up and dies and leaves this whole mess in his sister-in-law's lap, his sister-in-law being Queen Anne. England joins the conflict and declares war on Spain and France in May of 1702, to which I can only guess the English population's reaction was some approximation of this. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 
The unresolved colonial issues from the end of King William's War quickly allowed the tensions in Europe to spill over into the colonies. Not only that, but the religious sectarianism of the war, Spain and France still being Catholic-dominant countries and England wanting a Spanish king that was more friendly to Protestantism on the Spanish throne, meant that the New England tendency towards anti-Catholicism brought tensions in New England to a boiling point very quickly. Fighting was widespread across the colonies, from English colonists against the French and natives in New France and Newfoundland, where they were relitigating the King William's War conflict, and to English colonists in the provinces of Carolina and Georgia, who were fighting a war with the French and Spanish in Florida. In the colonies, Queen Anne's War ends up being more of a set of skirmishes and guerrilla warfare, though the English Navy would do some full-scale invasions of Caribbean islands held by the French. Again, this is where I skip most of the gory details because military history bores me so very much. There's a lot of battles, tit for tat, retaliatory strikes between the two sides of the war. There, summarized. For the most part, the English colonists were fighting this war on their own, with no extra support from England itself. That changed in 1709 when the English government finally sent in five warships with 400 marines, which drastically turned the tide for the English colonists. Then English warships captured Port Royal, not the one from Pirates of the Caribbean. This one was in Nova Scotia. There's not a lot of originality in naming conventions from this period. Finally, the 11 years of back-and-forth battles comes to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Utrecht. The treaty made Philip V, grandson of Louis XIV, king of Spain. It also forced France to give England some of its land in North America and the Caribbean, including Newfoundland, Acadia, the Hudson Bay region of northeastern Canada, and the island of St. Kitts in the West Indies. Spain was forced to give England the islands of Menorca and Gibraltar. So the deceased King William got nothing he wanted when he started this whole thing, i.e. the Holy Roman Emperor's kid on the Spanish throne, but England got some neat geographic doodads to play with. Worth it? Only the people who didn't actually have to fight in the war, probably. I'm not sure the casualties of the war would disagree. Though I suppose the English did hate the French an awful lot, so maybe they'd think it was worth it just to give the French a bloody nose. What do I know? After all, the resentment between the British and the French would continue to build up until it started another war in 1744. This time with a new English ruler's name attached. Like I said, naming conventions were not that creative. And so we reach King George's War. This one also has some other names. The War of Austrian Succession and the Third French and Indian War and a semi-related war during this period called the War of Jenkins' Ear that takes place between the British and Spanish in the Caribbean. Robert Jenkins was an English sea captain whose ear was allegedly cut off by the Spanish Coast Guard when searching his ship for contraband in 1731, eight years before the War of Jenkins' Ear started. So I don't know why they named it that, but some British historian in 1858 thought it was a good idea. At least it's more creative than the rest of the names of these wars. As the name The War of Austrian Secession would suggest, this is yet another war about who gets to sit on a pretty gilded throne. This throne being the Holy Roman Emperors. In 1740, Charles VI, the dude that William III wanted to be King of Spain, dies without a male heir. He does have children, just no sons. A law passed in 1713, the Pragmatic Sanction of 1713, declared that the line of succession would be any son of the monarch followed by the eldest daughter. So Charles VI's daughter, Maria Therese, inherits the throne. Unfortunately for Maria Therese, the male Habsburgs were apparently the Andrew Tates of 18th century Europe, and they didn't like that shit at all. They claimed that Salic law, a 6th century Frankish law code, prohibited women from inheriting the throne. What a 6th century law code had to do with anything when the 1713 law clearly said that women could inherit as long as there were no male heirs is anyone's guess. 
There's a long history of men trying to regress the law to whatever period is most useful for them to keep women in their place, though, so it's not like I'm surprised that they cited a law that was over a thousand years out of date at the time. Frederick II of Prussia says, screw that pragmatic sanction, and invades a Habsburg province, which is now Poland, and conquers it in 1741. So Prussia invades Austria, also known as the Holy Roman Empire, and gets France to join them in an anti-Austrian alliance. So, of course, Britain forms an alliance with Austria because France is involved and they, say it with me, everybody, hate France. Do you want to form an alliance with me? Absolutely, I do. Good. Good. Excellent. If France gained major control in Europe, Britain's commercial and colonial empire would be threatened because France also hates Britain. France declares war on Britain in 1744. Eventually, the news of the declaration of war by France reaches the colonies, and of course, immediately the colonials are at each other's throats again. The British go after Fortress Louisbourg in Nova Scotia and keep it under siege for six weeks before they finally capture it. The Wabanaki Confederacy is still on France's side, so they start attacking British settlements all throughout Maine. Saratoga, New York gets absolutely destroyed in November of 1745. 30 colonists die and 100 are taken prisoner. A bunch of skirmishes and fights take place. King George's war was relatively short, only four years compared to the nine years of King William's war and the 11 of Queen Anne's. In 1748, France, England, and the Dutch republics all get together to sign another treaty and end the war. Because treaties have worked so well in the past. I'm sure the French and British won't start any more wars now, especially since the treaty actually bothered to work out all of those tension-causing boundary issues between the colonies of England and France, right? Right? Oh, wait, no, it didn't. Almost as soon as the treaty was signed, France and England are sniping at each other over territorial borders in the colonies again. So good job there, guys. I'm sure another war won't be caused by this. You sure about that? You sure about that? You sure about that? And of course, that brings us to the Seven Years' War, but we'll get to that one in another episode. Thanks for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history. Sorry for the delay on this episode. It turns out that it's a lot harder than I thought to make French and British military history interesting. Who would have known? Next time, we'll be beginning to look at the Seven Years' War and the exploits of a young George Washington. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you back here next Monday.